Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. more and more people to be able to speak out but the first few people who do that are going to get their heads shut off your father can't visit your mother in the care home but boris says it'll be okay because your kettle will be able to run off a wind farm off anglesey they immediately tell me that racism isn't getting any better at all so when was it better with your parents generation chicken licking, getting upset about the acorn falling on his head and thinking the sky was going to fall in. When it comes to dealing with this pandemic, let's not be chicken licking. One. We have liftoff. It's another blast off, so strap yourself in and brace, brace. We're heading for Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. This was the week when, just as daily Covid cases seemed to be falling, with official warnings of a second peak looking silly, government boffins found another 16,000 cases down the back of the sofa. (laughs) Now we all know, whatever the government line, that anti-Covid restrictions mean it's tougher to see a doctor in person or get non-Covid hospital treatment. Customer service has collapsed, with many in the public and private sector using Covid as an excuse to let standards slip. But this was the week we also learnt that Covid's resulting not only in shorter prison sentences, oh yes, but also (laughs) the downsizing of turkeys, with farmers breeding smaller birds ready for a rule of six Christmas. There's also been an explosion in the size of giant vegetables, as bored lockdown gardeners have really gone for it, posting their beauties online. One bloke in Nottingham grew a 27-foot beetroot. A novice gardener in Derbyshire nurtured a three and a half stone cabbage. Some down to earth news, Alison. You see what I did there? A bit of light relief after another pretty depressing week. You've made that stuff up about the cabbage, haven't you? I haven't. It's true. (laughs) It's true. It's a three and a half stone cabbage. Even an Irishman of your proportions would be struggling with a three and a half stone cabbage, mate. That's a snack, right? Here you go. You doubt. Hang on, hang on. I'm not having that. I'm not having that, Pearson. You doubt me. (laughs) Right. Dominic Driscoll from Wingerworth, Derbyshire, (laughs) grew a 22 kilogram cabbage in his allotment during lockdown. (laughs) I've done my maths. That's 3.4 stone. Round it up, three and a half stone. I think that's coming close to what <laughs> Boris Johnson has shed from his uh, adipose tissue. It's quite hard to believe this week, isn't it? Because it, it kicked off with a, an SNP MP called Margaret Ferrier, who, having roundly called for Dominic Cummings's resignation, do you remember when he made his infamous trip to Barnard Castle to get the eye test? And Margaret was very splenetic about that, but she had a she she beat Dominic Cummings because she had a positive COVID test, and she went on a train to Westminster. Presumably, they should they should all be in lockdown, shouldn't they? All the MPs. Blimey. And then she got on a train after she'd had the confirmation she had COVID back to Scotland. So Nicola Sturgeon re- referred to her accidentally as COVID Margaret, which I thought was a good match for 
Typhoid Mary, isn't it, really? And the speaker, Lindsay Hoyle of the Commons, gave her a right, well, the word begins with B um, and ends in ing. So, yeah, I mean, another B ending in ing, I think this week should be going to Mr Matt Hancock. Not only did we have this remarkable spectacle of, of as you said, the 16,000 cases which got lost down the sofa, and um, Matt being Matt always tries to present this as though it's really rather good news because they've now tracked down 51% of the missing cases. So it's only another 49% are missing. But, I mean, I think probably the worst thing of the week for me was Matt Hancock really warning cancer patients that they couldn't expect to have treatment if we didn't drive the number of COVID cases down. Imagine, I mean, I don't even have to imagine because my father's in this situation, who's uh, mm. 82. Imagine being a cancer patient and you're worried about whether or not you're going to get your treatment. And you've got the health secretary saying your potentially life-saving treatment may be taken away contingent on what other people are doing across the country. That's that's quite cruel. And let's not forget, they've spent hundreds of millions of pounds of your dad's money, every person in this country's money, on the Nightingale hospitals, on throwing more money at the NHS. They should now be up to speed, shouldn't they? We're not really seeing a great spike in the hospital cases at the moment, a bit, but not too bad. But to turn around and say, well, if we can't cope, then all the people with the other diseases are going to cop it. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing. I mean, my scientist friend calls Hancock Wazak, which I think is a good word, really. Don't you think, Liam? So, hence- You know what? There is a feature to be done on Planet Normal, sort of <laughs> slang insults from the 70s and 80s, right? Yes, Wazak is up there. But we've also got, so let's have let's have a look at this now. All right, I know I'm always boring you with my tedious facts, but there was one day where we did have a spike in cases, COVID cases, 11,944 cases. And as we learned from the wonderful Ivor Cummings last week, a case doesn't really mean people are ill. It's just a positive test that they've got from one of their super sensitive PCR tests. And on that same day, there were 470 hospital admissions, again, a bit higher, but there should be nothing to to worry about if the NHS is functioning properly as it's had time to do and there were 57 deaths a rolling average. Liam let me just remind you 450 deaths every single day from cancer, 1600 deaths in the England and Wales every day just normally. So that's 57 out of 1,600, and you're the maths person, but that's quite a small number. And it's consistently, COVID has consistently now been 2.2% of all deaths in our country. And what are we doing to all the other people? And that's why I really lost my rag in the column, my column this week. You probably went into one. Well... (laughs) No, rightly so, rightly so. Well, we are getting, aren't we, on Planet Normal... So many emails, it's unbelievable. So many heartbreaking emails yeah. from people unable to see. We know, read out last week, got very upset. Robert's email about being unable to go into the care home to see his uh, childhood sweetheart, now 83, Josephine. And I hesitate to say Robert was one of many because it kind of it lessens the value of what he wrote to us. But but his email literally, we could have read out dozens of emails just like Robert's. That's the point. Yes. And and Boris was said to Andrew Marr on Sunday, well, actually, yes, this is all very well, but I've got to save lives. And you're thinking, whose lives are you saving? I mean, 
I'm not going to be heartless because like you, I've got a very beloved parent in her 80s. But the reality is, Liam, is that the average age of deaths from COVID pretty much maps on to the average age of deaths, which is completely normal in this country, which I think is about 81 for a man and 84 for a woman. And many, 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 many COVID deaths, they are on the pathologist report, if there is one, they are comorbidities. So what we're seeing is the people dying from, of or with COVID, uh, Mm. their unfortunate deaths, tragic, of course, for the families concerned and their loved ones, are almost entirely among people who are the age of our mortality anyway with other conditions. That's not to demean those deaths. What it is to do is to question and question seriously and without feeling intimidated the whole basis, the whole premise of locking down the whole of the population with all the massive economic, social, societal, psychological implications that has. Boris actually was on very good form. It was his best performance in this uh, speech. I agree. Which was and you to... said that in the column, and I think that was right. Yeah, he was just speaking very well. He was, a lot of his old flourishes were in, you know, joking about himself, you know, my friends, I was too fat and saying he was now less fat so he could search for the hero inside yourself. And you think, how we long, Liam, for Boris to search for the hero inside himself? Because one of the things that really struck me about this rather good speech was that it seemed to be based entirely on the future, this long-term future of when we're going to have this marvellous green energy and all young people are going to be able to buy a house with a 95% mortgage. (laughs) I was thinking, people around the country, can you imagine? Your father can't visit your mother in the care home, your child's locked in a room at university, your husband's facing losing his job, but Boris says it'll be okay because your kettle will be able to run off a wind farm off Anglesey in 10 years' time. I mean, Correct me if I'm wrong, but that doesn't that didn't seem to me to be actually tackling the problem that was in front of us. I've called for Boris Johnson to lay out a long term vision for the UK. They actually nicked from one of my columns the whole idea Ooh. of a new Jerusalem, which which is fair enough. Yeah. But what I would say is I did feel that parts of that speech, even though it was a better speech from him, even though he looked better health-wise and psychologically, mm. he seemed to have a little bit of his intellectual mojo back. I did feel that some parts of that speech somewhat jarred with what we're hearing from our listeners, fellow citizens of Planet Normal, and what we're saying on this podcast. Because I think in the last two or three weeks, there has been a real sea change of opinion. Absolutely. And I think what we've been doing on Planet Normal has reflected that. We've had Shinetra Gupta, we've had Ivor Cummings. The response to those two guests has been absolutely enormous. And let's not be in any doubt now, you know, there is real pushback. MPs are revolting over a 10pm curfew. People Mm. in pubs are wielding statistics. I heard it last night in my local. Just 26% (laughs) of COVID patients were on ventilators after going into hospital with COVID during September compared to 76 at the height of the, the pandemic. The punters are managing clearly to distinguish between cases which are back where they were at the height of the pandemic on some days and hospitalizations and deaths which as you've pointed out relentlessly with your velma specs on are yeah. <laughs> on the floor are extremely low and are just in keeping with normal death rates across the board for this time of year from respiratory 
diseases. And I don't think Boris has really got hold of that. And now you've got Shinetra Gupta, haven't you, who is absolutely at the centre. You know, how nervous was Mm. she when she came on Planet Normal? You interviewed her. You could hear it in her voice. She's not used to being some kind of street-fighting campaigner. Mm. She's an extremely distinguished professor at Oxford. Mm. And now she's at the centre of this new global petition to have a more sensible approach, a more focused approach to lockdown, encouraging older people to lock down while many of the rest of us just get on with our lives for all kinds of scientific and societal reasons. Yes, I mean, Professor Gupta with a a professor from Harvard and from Stanford, this week they released the Great Barrington Declaration and they're calling for focused protection for high-risk people while the majority of people get on with their normal lives and don't cause further harm in society. And it's interesting, Liam, as well, because the doctors over here, as we found, they're quite loath to speak out because it's quite, you know, the NHS obviously has quite a punitive attitude to people who tell the truth about what's going on in the NHS. But we saw this week 66 quite high-profile GPs writing an open letter to ministers asking them to consider non-COVID cases and deaths to treat them with equal standing with the deaths from COVID. So that's another another example, isn't it? And we've also, as you say, we've had certain MPs, a few, a handful of MPs. Now, the government's panicked. It was going to have, I think it's Wednesday, it was going to have the vote on the 10pm curfew in line with its promise to give Parliament a bit of a say. They obviously realised there was a danger they might lose it, particularly if the Labour MPs finally get off their hands and finally do something to protect their constituents. So they've moved the 10pm curfew thing to a committee next week, obviously hoping that, you know, to bury it. But I do think you're right that, that awareness is, is growing. Before I, before we go on to your excellent piece in the Sunday Telegraph, can I just say that a couple of listeners have, have said that you were very ungallant to say that I could not be Daphne in Scooby-Doo. No. <laughs> Now we're getting down to the brass tacks, aren't we? Now we're getting down to what really matters. We're in the middle of discussing this worldwide <laughs> pandemic, you know, well, massive societal and health implications. And all you care about is which cartoon character you're compared <laughs> to, because one of them is quite foxy and the other one's, you know, not so foxy and wears an orange roll neck and specs. Look, Velma is the one with the brains. You should be happy that I compare you with Velma. I know, but Daphne's got the wet look boots. And when I was when I was watching Scooby Doo, <laughs> she's sort of channeling Twiggy, isn't she? When I she very much is. And when I was watching Scooby Doo, I was a little girl in South Wales with terrible specs because all specs in those days. Now the kids have got really kind of lovely specs, haven't they? But mine were like sort of mini Dame Edna jobs with flying buttresses off the edge, you know. And uh, and you got called you were, you were four eyes forever. So I basically for most of my growing up, I wandered around in the kind of myopic blur because I was much too embarrassed to wear the specs. So you're, you're tapping a your raw nerve, Halligan. You think I don't know that? You think I don't know that? <laughs> <laughs> Let's get back to your fant- really good piece in the Sunday Telegraph, which not only did I read it, I looked at the You even understood gra- some of it. I, I understood some of it and I looked at the graphs. I mean, that, you know, that's <laughs> going some. But you were talking about an interesting speech by Andy Haldane, the Bank of England's chief economist. You obviously rather admire him. And he was 
railing slightly against the pessimists and saying that encouraging news about the present shouldn't be drowned out by fears for the future. Now is not the time for the economics of chicken licking, who, of course, was the the children's book character who had an acorn fall on his head and went round terrifying all the other animals by saying the sky's falling. And your pessimism or, or your maybe your real, let's say that, let's put that better, your realism, Liam. I was really impressed this week to see a leaked report that Therese Coffey at the Department of Work and Pensions, let's, a couple of cheers for Therese actually, who seems to actually have been doing the job. Thoughtful, like, thoughtful politician. Clever woman, a chemistry she's PhD. She's welfare secretary, which, are, which is a big job, but yes. she's a thoughtful politician. But she's, you know, coordinated getting all the money to all these people on furlough and, and well done to her for not losing that down the back of the sofa. But apparently her department is preparing for four million unemployed by Christmas, which is what you have said all along. Yeah, I've been saying that since May and June and been derided by my fellow economists. But for can it. you tell me about this? Chicken. Do you, do you think Andy Haldane's got a point that are we are we being too pessimistic? Okay, so, or are so we Andy being... Haldane is is a very thoughtful guy. He's not your average sort of Whitehall public sector economist, but he is chief economist of the Bank of England, and he writes very interesting, thoughtful speeches that sometimes I think the Bank of England's press department hasn't actually read. What Andy Haldane said recently was that we shouldn't be practising the economics of chicken licking because, of course, chicken licking, getting upset about the acorn falling on his head and thinking the sky was going to fall in, he convinced all the other farmyard animals to hide in the forest and there they, there they got ate by mm. the big mm. bad fox. Uh, and there's something in that. We shouldn't be overly pessimistic. What I said in the column was that actually, while I'm all for you know trying to look on the bright side of life and be positive and get investment going, that's why I've wanted... Johnson for months now to outline some kind of economic vision. The biggest issue we have to look at in terms of economics coming down the track is unemployment, which I think is going to hit 4 million. So that's like 12, 13%, much higher than the one in 10 when, when we were kids, Alison, mm. which of course was convulsed our politics. But what I ended the column saying, and I was very much inspired by Shinetra, this great Barrington declaration, that's the, the town in Massachusetts where it was written, calling for a more focused uh, lockdown, I said the biggest economic danger we face is the uh, refusal of our leaders, not just in the UK but beyond, to respond to data that's emerging on this mm. pandemic, to, to actually follow the data that exists rather than clinging to... Mm scientists and their their predictions their models and the, with the data that exists showing as cases stay quite high hospitalizations and deaths are quite low and now you've got you know many many scientists backing that that Barrington declaration almost 3000 scientists have signed it already Alison mm -hmm. almost 4000 medical practitioners have signed it already and that can only grow and that's what I was saying to Andy Haldane in my column you know, COVID is no acorn, right? No. It's serious. But when it comes to dealing with this pandemic, let's not be chicken licking. And I think Rishi Sunak gets that. I think the Chancellor gets that. I've had conversations with two other cabinet ministers over the last week who phoned me, having read that column and the evidence saying, right, state your case, change my mind. Something's happening. And Boris needs to get with it. And that speech he just gave, good to see him looking better. 
Good to see him upbeat. Good to see him now with his health on the way to where it should be. But he is not getting this change in public opinion. And he is too wedded to his scientific advisors. I really agree. And, you know, talk about exponential growth in in cases, which absolutely isn't happening. And we are, as we said, predicted at the time, miles away from the Sir Patrick Valance graph of doom. I mean, the idea that we're going to have 50,000 cases a day next week, which is when he said would happen. And, and, and we, we know that's been, you know, completely exposed as, as, as dreadful, basically propaganda. But the only exponential growth going on at the moment, Liam, is in, is in the time it's going to take us to get back to normal. So remember, Boris said that by November, things would be significantly back to normal. But in his speech this week, he said, but by this time next year, the Tory conference should be able to meet face to face. I mean, I don't know about you, but I think about another two months of this thing and I'm done. You know, I'm actually starting to look at countries where I'm where I'm going to live. I mean, I just can't stand it. But Something that jumped out at me, I'm afraid I can't remember the name of the brilliant Planet Normal listener who sent me this Winston Churchill quote, but do do email and identify yourself because it's the most brilliant quote, Liam, and I wrote about it in the column. I'm just going to quote it to listeners now. It says, Winston Churchill, nothing would be more fatal than for the government of states to get into the hands of experts Expert knowledge is limited knowledge and the unlimited ignorance of the plain man who knows where it hurts is a safer guide than any rigorous direction of a specialist. Isn't that brilliant? So we've been talking a lot about COVID in recent weeks, of course. So here's something a little different. We hear a lot about identity politics. That's a bit like what we used to call political correctness. And increasingly, lots of our institutions, particularly universities, but also broadcasters and some businesses, have really focused on this, with many of the rest of us walking on eggshells when it comes to issues of identity, particularly gender and race, not knowing what words and even pronouns like him and her that we can use and can't use. Now, two very brave academics, Helen Pluckrose, who specialises in literature and culture, and James, Jim Lindsay, a mathematician and physicist, They've had enough of this stuff. They've written a book called Cynical Theories. This book bemoans the fact that so much of academia and broader society is disappearing down the wormhole of identity politics. So I thought Alison would invite Helen Pluckrose to Planet Normal. And I started by asking her why she and Jim Lindsay decided to write this book. We've been seeing this problem developing for quite a while now, and it's been intensifying over the last five years. This whole sort of idea of knowledge as a social construct that operates in the service of power and is spread by ways of talking about things. So we all have to be very, very careful that we use all the right words and don't use the wrong words and look at the power dynamics underlying everything. We think it's getting in the way of proper social justice and um, damaging the humanities. I've tried to look at um, women's religious writing and it's very difficult to do that now without using this kind of theory and it, it really makes it hard for me to do any work that I can be proud of. Now Jim, yes, he's got a mathematician's mind so he sees systems and patterns of things but he's focused on the psychology of religion and of extremism so this has kind of come together to look at the current problem that we're seeing. And what really grabbed me in the book of course is when you both submit 
spoofed articles to scholarly journals, submitting pieces that are frankly ridiculous, dressed up in write-on academic language, to peer-reviewed journals, and they're published. You had a piece in a journal of feminist geography entitled Human Reactions to Rape Culture and Queer Performativity at Urban Dog Parks in Portland, Oregon. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like... Why is this kind of stuff getting published? You had another, our struggle is my struggle. You reproduce excerpts of Mein Kampf by Hitler with some feminist social justice theory thrown in. And that was duly published. Yeah, see, th- this is what we're we're particularly worried about. The thing to understand about our papers is that they are indistinguishable from hundreds, probably thousands of other papers that are already out there. All of our references are accurate and they're all cited accurately. So this kind of pseudo-scholarship is gaining traction within the realms of important areas of study where we need empirical scholarship and, and consistent ethics. So, yeah, people always remember the dog park paper because it... It was um, it was fu- the funny one, you know. It got an award for being um, exemplary scholarship, and, and we argued that by looking at dogs in a dog park and then examining their genitals and questioning the owners about their sexuality, we could discover something about rape culture in nightclubs and learn how to train men much as we train dogs. And we used black feminist criminology to do this. Now, black feminist criminology had no relevance there whatsoever, and neither could we claim anything that we claimed. And this is really what, what is so worrying. You know, it's it's amusing in one way, but there is also some important work that could be being done and is still being done by some scholars, some of whom have written to me and said, yes, thank you for showing us this problem. <laughs> oh <my> God. <laughs> At the heart of your book is a, a survey of how postmodernism evolved from the 1960s onwards. That's not something we've discussed on Planet Normal before, but you really do show how this critical theory has become so influential. You had authors like Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, all claims to truth, they're sceptical of those. Truth in all its forms is subjective, like a function of power exerted by the privileged over the victimised. But this kind of academic game-playing is now being sort of imposed on the real world by some of our leading universities. Yeah, and uh, corporations as well at the moment. I'm mostly dealing with people working in all kinds of spheres who are trying to navigate um, a particular kind of diversity training that uses precisely these theories. And so... It, it's not just something that was in a certain area of academia. It's very much spread out from there now. Some of the um, the books like White Fragility and How to Be an Anti-Racist are bestsellers. Corporations are using them. The whole sort of equity, diversity and inclusion industry is growing. They're having offices to uh, monitor how people are thinking and, and speaking in all kinds of fields now. And we really need people to understand what this is, how it works, and how to push back at it in a knowledgeable and ethical way. These kind of notions that there's no real truth, they're even extending, aren't they, into engineering and the sciences. You cite one recent book, Engineering and Social Justice, What? Mm -hmm. that claims, quote, getting beyond views of truth as objective and absolute is the most fundamental change we need in engineering education. Really? You need maths and physics to build a bridge or build a building. They're objective. They're science. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and, the, and one of the sort of worrying on a social level from this is that they intend this to be anti-racist by claiming that things like science, maths, technology, um, reason even, and even literacy sometimes, are white Western ways of knowing which have been unfairly imposed on everybody else. It's essentially saying that these rigorous uh, disciplines, which are universal, which are in search of objective truth, aren't for women or people of colour. And that's that's really not a, a good aim for social justice. And yes, you wouldn't want to use a bridge that had uh, worked on this way. Isn't this stuff really dangerous, Helen? I mean, I don't know about you. I grew up in a relatively underprivileged part of London. It was a very ethnically mixed place. We all rubbed along. We all got on pretty well. Isn't Britain a pretty multicultural place where it's quite tolerant? Why are we importing this kind of stuff and what's it doing to our social fabric i think you know studies have shown that that the uk is one of the least racist countries in the world i think it was india that was the most racist country we are doing pretty well i i understand concerns that we could get complacent that we could think all those battles have been won you know there are still issues i'm quite sure that yes there are still disadvantages um to being non-white or non-british which need addressing but yet not in this way this is not a productive way as I think you were getting at critical race theory was developed in a specifically American context and it doesn't really translate very well across the Atlantic we can have some scholarship obviously into the history of the UK the Windrush um, generation uh, post-colonial aftermath rigorous scholarship can be done into this but by trying just to impose a framework that comes from America's history of, of having two racial classes in a subordinated and dominant position and then trying to put it on top of the UK, which has a different history, is just extremely messy. <laughs> I totally hear you and I totally accept your thought there. And it is important to say it that, of course, there is still some racism in the UK. Of course, there are still advantages enjoyed by men that aren't enjoyed by women. Of course, there's an all-pervasive class system. But, you know, I know as somebody who grew up as an Irish Catholic in the 70s and 80s that we've made and are making and are continuing to make absolutely enormous mm. progress. And the way to make progress is to mix, is to go to school together, is to be in and out of each other's houses, is to be open-minded and tolerant of each other, not for one section of society to point at another section of society and say, you know, you are always being oppressive of us and it's up to us to decide whether or not you are being oppressive. And yet this academic guff seems to be designed to promote that kind of intolerance and stir up that kind of trouble. Yeah, this is what I find most worrying because the attitude that you're just describing is the liberal attitude. We focus on the individual and we focus on the universal. So we care who people are as people and not um, what they look like. We recognise everybody as part of the shared human race. Now, we haven't um, perfectly achieved that, but this is the aim and great strides have been being made towards that. It, it is now somebody who says 
something racist is generally regarded as both stupid and unethical. We've got a dominant narrative, if we're going to talk about discourses now, that racism is is just wrong. So I, I think, yeah, we were going in the right direction. And this works with human nature. We are tribal and territorial animals. We have this tendency to think well of our in-group and to demonise, dehumanise and really be callously indifferent to out-groups. This has, has served as well in our evolutionary history. So liberalism, which expands our in-group as far as possible, has worked very well for multiculturalism, for social cohesion. But when we get this kind of identity politics where we have to consider women and men as classes in conflict, black people and white people, gay and straight people, cis and trans people, then we're, we're really activating the worst of our nature, where we're going to try and defend ourselves by saying that we are the good people, we're going to see ourselves as opposed to the opposite group. It's certainly not going to help um, racial equality. Hello, listeners. I'm Christopher Hope, interrupting your podcast listening to tell you about another show I know you'll enjoy. It's called The Trump Card, and it's a three-part series for the man who understands President Trump better than most, his friend Nigel Farage. Wow. What a job he did, Mr. Nigel Farage. Thank you very much indeed. Mr. Farage has been to the White House more than many world leaders. He then shook me by the hand. He said, thank you, thank you. He said, you will be my friend for life. So who better to tell us what Donald Trump is like when the cameras are off? You're dealing with somebody who, if he thinks you're a friend, he becomes a friend of yours. And, as another unpredictable election draws near, what's his Trump card? Search the Trump card wherever you're listening to this podcast or go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash Trump card. I mean, around half of our universities now have been forced formally to restrict speech and certain views of religion and trans identity. This seems to be exactly the opposite of what a university should be about when it's about exploring ideas and hearing from all kinds of different speakers. Obviously, there are rightly laws against you know hate speech and uh, and so on, and they should be there. But why are we why are we molly coddling our our younger people like this? Why are we wrapping everybody in cotton wool? It's almost as if we've become afraid of ourselves. I think that there is an element of that because if we understand the world to be socially constructed by language, then we are kind of training people to read this into language, to feel harmed by it, and to and it's a real moral imperative to shut that language down. What do people do if if they're expected to affirm that they are racist and they are part of the problem? And this is something that we're actually working on at the moment. I've, I've got a Discord server for people who are um, finding themselves in trouble and need advice of this kind. I hear a lot from white people who are saying that they are being expected to affirm that they are racist and to talk about how they're going to dismantle their whiteness and their white um, privilege. But I'm also hearing a lot from black, but particularly South Asian people who are being expected to testify to a particular kind of experience of racism that they don't actually believe they have experienced. And if they're concerned about racism, which many of them are, it's not in this particular way. One of the most presumptuous things about this kind of theory is that it does claim to speak for people of a certain race, which 
isn't what any kind of studies into this show. We have particularly South Asian people who tend to be religious, often have quite conservative ideas of how society works. They have a belief in individual responsibility, tend to have a sense of pride that then can feel humiliated if they are expected to say, yes, I am a victim of this and that and the other. It just seems trivial is the wrong word because obviously our interrelations with each other are so important. But it seems to me, with the best will in the world, that there's an awful lot of people here trying to you know, point to problems that are far, far less and are well on their way to being mended. I mean, a lot of the rest of the world does look at the UK as a model of racial tolerance. Yes, there are flare-ups. Of course there are. But compared to many, many other countries, we're in a reasonably good place, aren't we, on our small windswept rock. We do need to recognise progress and and this is the problem that that we get with people who are generally known as progressives is that they are very reluctant to acknowledge that we have uh, progressed. In the 1950s it was um, something like 95% of people cared about the race of the person who lived next door. A couple of years ago it it was only 30% or something like that. It, It really is a huge jump and if I try and say this to people then they immediately tell me that racism isn't getting any better at all and I ask them so when was it better? With your parents' generation? What about your grandparents? It quite clearly is getting a lot better. And I understand the need not to be complacent about this, but we cannot make progress unless we recognise that we've already made some and carry on doing the things that we're making it. Now, a lot of the ideas that you and James have brought together so brilliantly in this book, and it is, is a fabulous read. I'm not, I'm not just saying that. I consumed it in two sittings. Oh, brilliant. They've been brought together, haven't they, into the sort of political realm under the phrase woke, because a lot of the social justice theory followers, they describe themselves as awakened to the concepts that they were describing. What do you say to people who say being woke just means that you're being good-mannered and you're not being bigoted? Mm. Yeah, this is um, what they call the Mott and Bailey, isn't it, where you get um, some people saying, well, this social justice... your medieval scholarship coming to the fore there. (laughs) (laughs) When you're questioned, when you're challenged, then you just say um, a very easily defensible thing. We just want um, people to respect each other and to have some cultural sensitivity. But then once this is accepted, we get... Back into this thing where everybody who is white is racist and um, everybody is is sexist and and we have the much less defensible claims being made. And so it gets quite difficult to address this and we have to really speak... And this is one of the reasons we wrote the book, because people were saying that we are constructing a straw man, that nobody really believes that. Now we can break it down. We can show the problem with it. We can show more ethical um, scholars and we can show more liberal approaches. And we, we can try to get people who have been tempted to, to go along with this. And this is mostly liberal lefties who don't actually hold these kind of postmodern beliefs, but think that social justice must be a good thing. They can't afford not to hold these views. Uh, yes, there's an element of that as well. Isn't that what they think? I mean, chief executives of companies think they can't afford not to hold these views. Yeah, this is something we've had a lot of luck with because when people come to us saying my my employer wants us to do this kind of training, the reality is that the employer probably doesn't understand 
the um, the framework beneath this training at all. And so if we can break it down, if we can say, do you really, if you have said, for example, that you want to support Black Lives Matter, do you really want to abolish the police? Do you really want to abolish the family? Do you really think that um, Marxism is a good way forward? So this is something that's been said by leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement. And, and people don't always realise that there is this really extreme core to it, which isn't about the belief that nearly everybody who isn't a psychopath has, that black lives do indeed matter. Isn't this kind of academic gobbledygook imposing itself on the real world in this way? Isn't it in danger of actually, Helen, setting back the cause of tolerance and justice and racial harmony and, you know, gender equality? Because an awful lot of people who are against those things can dismiss those proposing them under these auspices as completely mad. That is one of the biggest worries of this. I mean, yesterday I I spent um, the day being accused of being ultra-woke by um, conservatives because we've got into this kind of polarised position now where either you believe this or you want to react against this. So people are feeling pushed into having to take a stance of either everything is racist or nothing is racist, that we are either in favour of social justice or opposed to it. So I think there's a danger of a reaction that that's going to be much less tolerant. And so my fear, it certainly is that we could, we could lose progress towards racial and gender equality. And, and particularly, we see it in relation to the trans activism. Now, vast majority of trans activists don't believe in this stuff. They don't behave in this way where they want to force people to use certain pronouns, where they want people to be arrested for not using them. But because we have trans activists so visible in this, we're seeing an increasing hostility towards trans people, which doesn't need to exist at, at all. You know? That's terrible. <laughs> that wokeness, it, it refers to being able to see these systems of power and privilege that the rest of us apparently just wander around accepting. And I, I don't think that that is the case. I think people can evaluate society from all kinds of different frameworks. If if the woke can see, can get outside the dominant discourses and see what's happening, I think liberals can too. I think conservatives can. I think people can generally look at society and discuss how it's working. But we're not having that debate at the moment, are we? Because even mainstream politicians are so scared of calling this stuff out and s suggesting that it has serious drawbacks in the way that we have in this discussion. Don't you long for very prominent people to join the likes of J.K. Rowling, frankly, Martina Navratilova and others who have tried to push back against enormous intolerance and accusing other people of terrible morality and telling them that the more they protest against it, the more it is a demonstration of their guilt. Otherwise, this is just going to escalate and you're, you are going to get much more entrenchment across society rather than people coming together. I think that is the danger. I think we need more and more people to be able to to speak out about it. But what we're seeing at, at the moment is we're in such a position that the first few people who do that are going to get their heads shut off. So at the moment, the only people who really can safely speak out about this are people like J.K. Rowling, bless her. She's, you know, she's financially secure. She's not very easy to cancel, but that doesn't mean it's been easy for her to have 
so many people turn against her, including, you know, the actors that she had such close relationships with for so many years. But then on another level, there's people like me. The reason I can do this is that nobody employs me. I am self-employed and largely financially independent. This isn't a good place for any, anything that considers itself to be left wing to be perpetuating. Only people who are financially independent can speak. The people who are actually um, reliant on jobs can't speak up about this. So we're, we're trying trying to connect people with each other. We're trying to sort of produce a groundswell where people will feel emboldened and they can perhaps all together in a certain organisation say, no, we are not going along with this. We oppose racism, but we don't agree with this system. Well, if I may say so, Helen Pluckrose, you're an extremely articulate young woman. You've written a very, very thoughtful, brave book. If I was a university vice chancellor, I'd certainly be offering you some kind of chair. Good luck to you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Liam. I particularly like the young bit. <laughs> <laughs> so we're activating the worst of our nature, says Helen Pluckrose. We're being sent on racial awareness courses where we're asked to dismantle our whiteness and our white privilege. It's a brave book. It was a brave interview. But Alison, by calling out this academic madness, this slide into identity politics, endless finger pointing, this search for offence where none is intended, isn't Helen Pluckrose just speaking common sense? Well, I love that interview, Liam. I'm so glad you invited her to Planet Normal. I mean, I learned so much. And also she makes you think afresh, doesn't she, about things that we're all aware of are going on. I mean, what leapt out at me was her saying that this woke stuff is getting in the way of social justice and damaging the humanities. And something that we've talked a little bit about on Planet Normal, I suppose, is that the radical left have proven over the last decade or so that they can't win power by the ballot box. They keep being rejected in elections. So they are colonising the institutions, the universities, the civil service. They've taken control of this. I was at Cambridge doing English in the very late 70s, early 80s, and structuralism came in. And structuralism was a kind of cage that you put over great literature to make it obey your sort of leftist rules. And I then went on, Liam, to, to do teacher training in London. And I was really shocked because this stuff had started taking off then. And I have a very vivid memory of being in a classroom with these very, very diverse group of kids. And it was basically, you're going to teach them a book, which is about a black kid who lives in a tower block and grows stuff in a window box. And you are supposed to be giving that book to black kids who live in a tower block. What about giving them stories, not just about stuff that they can relate to, which I find unbelievably patronising. And uh, let me tell you my absolute favourite story from that period, OK? So there's a class of girls, black, many from South Asian backgrounds. And as a, as a young teacher learning to doing your PGCE, you were basically told to give the kids stuff from their own cultural backgrounds. All right. Never mind you know, Dickens or Enid Blyton or whatever, you know, give them stuff from their own background. So I was very solemnly standing at the front of the class this particular day, reading out some book of short stories from Southeast Asia. And eventually one of the girls in the front row, she was um, Bangladeshi, actually, Bangladeshi British, I should say. And she put up her hand and she said, sorry, miss. She said, we don't like this stuff about snakes. She said, we're English. We like ice skating. <laughs> and I thought, Whenever I see any of this multiculturalism rubbish, I think of that marvellous girl. Sorry, miss, we're English, we like ice skating. Isn't that wonderful? 
I think an awful lot of the population have been pretty overwhelmed and baffled by a lot of this stuff over recent years, and particularly over the last year or two. It seems that almost every BBC drama now has to have these kind of identity politics storylines woven into them. Even you know classical literature that's dramatised on the television has these kind of modern social mores as if the stories in their own right don't stand up, as if representing lifestyles and human behaviour from other centuries is unacceptable. I find that really, really concerning. I also, as somebody who grew up in a very multicultural, multiracial background, and, and in some senses was from an ethnic minority myself, as an Irish Catholic, as I said in the interview... You know, there are still problems. Of course there are. But the progress we've made over recent years is absolutely enormous. It's not to be complacent. But as Helen Pluckrose says, if we don't recognise progress, then we can't make more progress. And I would say, Alison, that far worse in this country than racial and gender discrimination is still class discrimination. Mm. I think it's far worse and it's far more insidious and it impacts a lot more people. And yet it's as if we all think that Britain is a classless society. In no way is Britain a classless society. And I would say that in recent years, while there have been tremendous advances by the Asian community, black Brits, you know, I celebrate all that absolutely from from the bottom of my heart. Mm. I would say that social mobility based on class has gone backwards and it's particularly gone backwards in our industry in the media. There's no way that me, who got the jobs that I got in the media back in the 90s and the early 2000s, would get those jobs now. No way. A world without Halligan telling us what to think. That's a, that's a very, very sad prospect. Isn't it? Um, <laughs> just to confirm what you've just said. So there's a piece of research out this week, which showed that surprise, surprise, the most educationally disadvantaged children are white working class boys. And if you ask me, Liam, this unconscious bias training that Helen was just telling us about, well, unconscious bias training should be at the BBC, the universities, the civil service and the SAGE scientific committee for their bias against people from our planet. I think that's exactly right. And more and more of this stuff now is going into the realm of business mm. and ordinary workplaces. I mean, how are you meant to feel if you are an ordinary person who's told that they're racist, but they don't know it? People are being accused of this stuff by others who know nothing of their background, who know nothing of their thoughts and feelings. And I think it's about time, uh, you know, I'll be accused of being ignorant for saying this, but I think it's about time as somebody who spent a lot of time at universities and I'm involved with the management of, of various universities now, I think it's about time that the universities pushed back and frankly grew a pair, mm. to mm. use some industrial language, <laughs> and said to students who want to cancel people, no, you're not doing that. You know, hate crime, racial in, uh, hatred, if you're in doing inciting that, of course. You know, we don't want extremist people provoking terrorism on university campuses. But it's the whole point of a university to go and listen to people whose views make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. There is no progress in intellectual pursuits without a bit of discomfort. 
And we have to relearn those lessons because we lose so much if we continue to to mollycoddle our young people to feel that there's no way that they can possibly be in the same room with people they disagree with. No, absolutely. And I, did you see this week that Sainsbury's was tweeting about Black History Month and basically saying we proudly represent our diverse society and anyone who doesn't want to shop with an inclusive retailer is welcome to shop elsewhere. And you thought, get over yourselves. You're overpriced, you know, fat and sugar selling supermarket. Where do you get off flaunting your woke credentials with normal shoppers who come into you to buy their groceries? But but it's everywhere. I mean, will Keir Starmer ever recover from that taking a knee next to Angela Rayner in the House of Commons. I mean, show that to the red wall come the next election and you'll think, what's the leader of the opposition doing bowing down before an organisation which wants to ban the police? So let's have some reader emails. So many of you are emailing us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Do keep them coming. Liam and I absolutely love them and we do reply personally to as many as we can and we usually try and feature half a dozen or so in our Planet Normal column which appears in the Telegraph online every Monday. Your emails are our rather precious connection with you, our fellow citizens of Planet Normal and we do really, really appreciate them. So here's one that caught my eye this week. This is from Bob. We might have saved the NHS for the benefit of those who work for it, but we haven't saved it for the patients who pay for it. My 92-year-old mother was halfway through a course of six weekly treatments to save her eyesight when she was locked into her home and not permitted to go to hospital anymore. Nine months after her last visit, it is impossible to speak to anyone to discuss how to proceed. Can her course continue? Will she have to start again? What effect will this discontinuation have? No one can or will respond. Plenty of promises, but that's it. It's quite disgraceful. Agree with you, Bob. This is from Neil. I'm beyond confused. I've just been to the pub where I have to wear a mask while standing, but not while sitting. I hadn't realised COVID got you in the upright position. (laughs) Keep up the good work on Planet Normal. And here's Hilary. I know you like hearing about daft lockdown restrictions. But I can't match the lady in Wales who couldn't go on to her holiday home, but could drive past it on the way to a different (laughs) one that she'd rented. In Scotland, we have the rule of six, but with the tartan tweak that the six can only be from a maximum of two households. So three of us from different households decided to go for a socially distanced walk in the countryside. Crazy lawbreakers that we are. (laughs) As we walked up a road alongside our local golf course, we realised had we been walking on the other side of the wall, pausing occasionally to hit a wee white ball, that would be perfectly legal, as restrictions on golf are different. Hillary gives her address only as somewhere in Scotland, brackets, just in case the wee Nicola sends the boys round. Oh, watch out for that wee Nicola. This is from Elizabeth along a similar line. We've just had the rules of restarting badminton in our village hall. Apart from being told to speak quietly and keep two metres apart, we are allowed to take off our masks to play and to drink our coffee. Gee, thanks. We have to keep the windows and the doors open so we will no doubt freeze to death long before the dreaded Covid strikes. We then go on to play tennis. We're all in our 70s as fit as fleas and still, thank God, have the capacity to know what we should and shouldn't do to keep ourselves safe without nanny. According to the new rules, you'll love this, Liam. We are meant to decide who takes the centre shots so we don't get too close to each other and only play with our own marked balls. 
Has that little civil servant who made up these pathetic rules ever played tennis? According to the statistics, our county has approximately 70 COVID cases in a population of 200,000 plus, which makes the chance of meeting someone with the virus somewhere in the region of 0.02%. Have we lost all sense of proportion? I so look forward to Planet Normal each week, a breath of sanity. P.S. And this is a really heartfelt P.S. from all of our listeners. I weep every time I hear of more cinemas and restaurants closing. Each one means closing off the first step on the employment ladder for some young person. How in heaven's name can we let this happen? Wow. Jenny says... As a means of explaining why our political leadership seems to have become prisoners of a small scientific clique, I'm reminded of a quote from Colin Powell, one of the best Republican presidents America never had. He said, experts often possess more data than judgment. Brilliant. And I I do like this. This is from a pub, Liam. This will speak to you. The Rose and Crown in Bebbington. Hey, Boris Johnson. We had 78 people booked in yesterday. You've changed the rule again and now we have 13 today. My rent, utility bills are still the same. I still employ the same number of staff today as I did yesterday. What do you expect me to do? And how about this from Philip? I've been tuning in to Planet Normal each week and love the show. In particular, the earth-shattering rants that Alison leads with. (laughs) I was listening to the latest episode while walking in a nearby field and I had to stop to stand on my soapbox and exclaim to the sheep how bonkers the world has become and to repeat Alison's excellent demolition of all things ridiculous. Rants? Excuse me. (laughs) Surely, Philip, you mean learned discourse. Excuse me. I want one final one. Johnny. Trump's treatment boosts antibodies. Hancock's treatment boosts busybodies. Very well said, Johnny. So that's it for our latest voyage to Planet Normal. Here comes the re-entry. Brace yourself for the madness of planet Earth as your weekly trip to the world of common sense comes to an end. However you listen to Planet Normal over a cup of tea or while nursing a stiff gin and tonic, while walking the dog or driving along in your car. We're so glad you're with us. We're storming up the podcast charts and our massed ranks of Planet Normal citizens are growing. So tell your friends and keep the faith until next Thursday when we'll be back for another voyage. Remember that every Thursday at 11am after the release of each new Planet Normal podcast, co-pilot Halligan and I will chat to fellow Planet Normal citizens via the Telegraph website. Just go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash community. Click on the article at the top of the page and leave a comment in the comments section. Between 11am and 12 noon on Thursdays, we will be there to reply to them. So please come and join us. Any questions about podcasts, how to listen, where to find the good ones? Check out the helpful article explaining all things podcast on the Telegraph website. You'll find the link to that in the show notes to this episode. And if you're enjoying Planet Normal, please leave us a five-star rating and maybe a short review. You know, you can have take a swipe at Halligan, but be nice about me. Um, on Apple Podcasts. Velma. Daphne. You're not Fred, mate. You're, you're shaggy and no mistake. If you don't know how to do that, again, just drop us an email and we'll show you how. So thanks as ever, as our beloved Planet Normal fades out of sight once more and Earth hoves into view... To our producers, Louisa Wells and Elliot Lampitt and Reese Gunter. And to our editor, Theola Ludis. And until our next voyage, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. <laughs> <laughs>